I'm so happy that the Lord did some things in my life that he did. One of those things being that he created me in such a way and formed me in such a way through the years that I'm able to enjoy the blessing of music, whether it's through instruments or choirs, bands or solos. I like it all. I just don't need any of it all the time. I need all of it as often as possible. Thank you for the work you did and for your dedication to bring and keep the music of the church alive through the choir in a very important way. Well, we've been on a journey of a little different kind in recent weeks, talking about how to build a better you, talking about what it means to be a person of emotional intelligence, what it means in your faith, how it applies to the life of Jesus and what it can mean to each of us. This morning, as the conclusion of this sermon series, we're going to take a little bit different journey. And a lot of what I'm going to say in the beginning is going to be coming directly from the book, The Emotional Intelligence of Jesus. It's going to be about how to build a better us as a community, how to be a better and an emotional intelligent church. Now, I never... I confess I never thought about churches in that sense in my life, although in some ways I did. I just didn't have words to put on it. For much of my life, I've known that one of the great differences between congregations that are thriving, striving, and growing both internally and in reach to other people has been a, a sense of a joyful, healthy sense of community among the people who are gathered together as a church. I've been in places where they almost made me sad. I remember a particular church I was sent to be the pastor, and I looked at the sanctuary, and it was kind of a dark place, you know, and, and it was, yet it's a very traditional kind of sanctuary. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, because I left a very uh, youngerish congregation that was a boisterous, it's a noisy, you almost had to hit them over the head to start worship service every Sunday. They were just buzzing everywhere, talking and embracing and sharing their week, and the joy was so evident. And I remember distinctly in this church when I came out for the morning worship, and in that particular church you sat in front, and I looked out on this sea of faces, and they all looked almost the same. And I thought, I've died, and I'm not in heaven. Okay, I didn't think exactly that, but that's what it meant. And you know what? It was just that way. It was just the way that they worshipped. And I had to kind of get myself into that, and I also had to ask them to take a journey toward a more joyful place. And there was a little group that used to sit on my right toward the darkness back there that I couldn't really see their faces, which was a good thing. They shared a common heritage of many, many, many years together in that church. And to think of smiling in worship, well, it was just a new thought to them. And as you can imagine, I was a new kind of pastor to them. And as you might also surmise, they prayed for me often, <laughs> even as I prayed for them. And in the end, I'm happy to say the Lord won, and I was still smiling. Being an emotionally intelligent congregation should mean something, because you see, Emotional intelligence is not a static characteristic in people, as we've been talking about, but the same is true for congregations. It's an ongoing process that builds upon a history of meaningful relationships between pastors and congregations, 
plus deep interpersonal relationships between its members. When such a congregation is forming and continually to be informed and transformed as that kind of a, a group, that kind of a community, then it becomes a place of healing and personal support for everyone within the congregation. Another way he defines it, those are his words, he also says, every congregation, I'm sorry, every EQ com- congregation is a community of people within which a good number of basic human needs are met. I know we think about going to church to see Jesus, and certainly we do. But it's in seeing Jesus and experiencing worship and other things like worship together that we become a community, that we get a communal sense of living. The world in which we live has a lot of very fast community. I need to walk over here because... I need to tell these young people something this morning because the world is going to tell you everything else and they're all wrong and I am speaking only the truth okay are you ready you might want to grab hold of your chair hold the hand next to you it's going to be a little hard I know that you have tons of ways of keeping constantly and immediately in touch right I'm not I'm tempted to have you recite the liturgy of the things I don't know anything about And I know you think because you can get on your phone and type in something and instantly someone messages you back that you're having meaningful communal activity. It's a lie. Meaningful communal activity occurs when people touch one another as we were exhibiting with the children this morning. When people look into one another's eyes and have conversation in which the depth of their souls are shared with another human. It's called human touch. It's called human connection. It's called conversation, not a many miles away where you can say whatever you want without the immediate results of what you're saying being seen. But rather you know what's happening in the very moment that you're saying it. Nothing on this earth can replace the power of human touch, human connections. And as good as all the wires and wireless connections are, they cannot replace it. If you will remember that, you will have a happier spirit as the years go by. I know you're going to keep doing the other. I get that. But be sure you're not mistaking that for the other, right? Because, you see, one of the strong points about a community of faith is that when we come together, it is a place of trust. It's a place of safety. It's a place of support. It's a place where we are known and we know others. He calls it a communal communal acceptance. Not only are we known and know others, but it's a place where people participate And from that participation, gain and become a part of community. The human contact and touch, the welcoming smile, words of introduction to people who walk into your midst as a congregation, draws those people into your community. You see, church is meant to be a positive, have a positive emotional climate. So that when people come in, they instantly feel better. 
But they should not walk into a church and instantly feel depressed, as I did that morning. <laughs> when I walked into a congregation, it was like everybody was dead and sitting in place. That had been their funeral place right there. And when I began to make jokes and to make fun of people, the few people that I knew early on, it was a lot of fun for me, but not so much for some other people. Because, you see, they didn't get the sense of community in the kind of warm climate that so many people under the age of 70 did. Did I say 70? I I should have said 50. But the reality was they had a sense of community. But if you were walking into that place as a visitor, you would never know it. It would never reach out and touch you because it was so scheduled in such a way that it was out of touch with a positive feedback of contact by people and people's lives. A communal acceptance is important, but so also is bonding. You know, you've read a lot about bonding in different, uh, from different places and different books. Bonding is based on trust. I know I knew something about bonding. I'd been bonded with my parents. I was very fortunate. It's a very loving environment, very accepting environment, giving each of three children what they needed in their own unique ways. But it was also a kind of place where not a lot of feelings were expressed outwardly. I remember in that situation, years later, after having been selected to be a husband to a, by a particular woman, a little girl came along, and I remember the magic that happened in that delivery room. You know, that was when it's still kind of new for men to actually be in the delivery room and understand what birthing was all about. And we had this thing called Lamaze, which I had no idea. I knew it was a tub of water, and that's about all I knew. And that we were going to do something with Sarah when she was born, and we didn't know it was going to be a she, but it was. And I remember her squalling her little red skinny face, and she was a skinny baby. Sally was trying to starve her, and she wasn't eating weeds and seeds then. I don't know... What it was, she was eating a normal diet, but still Sarah got here and she was so thin and she was just wailing away. And I remember the doctor taking her and handing her to me. And I remember I got this little squalling baby for the first time. This was number one. And so I knew I was supposed to put her in that warm water, so I did. And then I began to bathe her. And she quit all the crying. You see, bonding with another human being can begin very early. It can begin with your children when they're very young. But you have to speak their language. For the language of a baby, it was all about touch. It was all about warmth. For your children, when they're very young, it means looking into their eyes and listening to that ridiculous tale that goes on forever. (laughs) And yet you look like you're the most interested person in the world. And you should be. It means that when your children grow up and they begin to have their own ideas, heaven forbid, and they become youth, it means looking into their eyes just like you did when they were young and listening to them and being sure that the bond is growing stronger when all the rest of their urges are trying to pull them apart from you. It means you won't allow that to happen. Bonding is about trust. community of faith is based on trust. Not only is it based on trust, 
the experience of community engenders greater trust amongst those who are part of it. And not just for them only, but also for people who come to be a part of that community. The building of trust creates unity in a congregation. And that unity is expressed when they worship together, when they sing together, when they pray together, when they read meaningful liturgy together and it, and it says what it means to their own hearts of faith. It's expressed most completely, even as we share it today perhaps, when we gather around this table and remember our Lord Jesus Christ who is a source of the community of the church. There are six characteristics of an emotionally intelligent congregation. Now, I can't explain a lot of these. I can't say much about them. You may hear some more about these individually later on. But I wanted to share them with you today because it seems so appropriate for us this morning. The first mark that he lists is it keeps three components of congregational life alive and healthy. Those three components are climate, theology, and vision. These three are intertwined, and they're all important. But I'm going to speak a little bit more about climate because in terms of the healthy emotional intelligence of a congregation, it is the most important of the three. The second characteristic of this kind of a congregation means that they develop an immune system that enables church leaders and members to intervene when toxic interchanges threaten to disrupt a positive community experience. His words, straight out of the book. You understand what it means when you're in immune system terms in terms of medicine. Your body's able to fight back against all the things that go on inside us that we don't even know it's fighting against on a daily moment-by-moment basis. And then when we're attacked from the outside. And being attacked from the outside is real. Now we're in the flu season. And you see, Sarah got the flu. But she didn't know it was a flu. She thought it was a cold that had been going around in her family. So by the time uh, the flu was raging, she finally went to the doctor. But then it was too late to take Tamiflu. So all she could do is remember what flu was like 20 years ago, which means she's still lying in the bed, and she's still running fever, and she's still struggling to feel like anything other than a puppy. It just attacked her body. And there's really nothing the doctor can do about it at that point other than to drink lots of fluids and wait until your immune system responds enough to the flu that you become well again. Now, in church terms, when we talk about an immune system, we talk about it in that kind of way. This immune system attacks what threatens the body. And, you know, it can be something as simple as a, as a meeting. You know how much we love meetings. But we especially love meetings when we can go to them and have a knockdown drag out, right? You know, when one side of the room just won't be convinced with what the other side of the room wants to do or believes. And some people in such interchanges occasionally don't exhibit, exhibit the best emotional intelligence. And they don't think about the feelings of other people in the room. They have no empathy. They just kind of blurt out whatever it is that they believe is right. <laughs> 
And sometimes when you have a person kind of leading the meeting as a chairperson or you're one of the pastors there, you kind of go, oh, boy, gasoline just got thrown on the fire. Not intentionally, but because of a toxic interchange that affects everyone in the room, even when the person didn't realize or mean for it to be toxic. And that's when your leader of your small group has to come involved in that process and go back without hurting the person who's made the mistake and yet encouraging the person who's struggling with what was just said or done. Such leaders in a church are critical to a church's emotional health. Third thing, an emotionally intelligent congregation ensures that congregational norms, the unconscious, unwritten rules about behavior are made conscious to those who are joining the congregation and are altered when needed to remain positive and keep relationships in the mood of being enhanced. Now, there was a day in churches when I first began doing children's sermons and we would tear the house down, kind of like we did this morning, that people would get very nervous. They would be like, what are you doing with our children? We've been trying to get them quiet all morning. Now you just let them blast the top off the roof. And I said, yeah, I let them be alive in church. I let them express themselves in church. And then I call them back down to be quiet after it's over. You see, children have to be able to do their thing too. And their thing is not exactly my thing. That's why grandchildren come and grandchildren leave. (laughs) Right? I mean... I have a certain amount of tolerance for grandchildren and noise and, and running and screaming. And if they're not going to leave and I'm still there, then it might be time for me to take a walk or go to the office or something. You know, you know when you know you've reached your emotional equivalent end, you need to do something else. Okay, you get that. Emotionally intelligent church use groups and team-building experiences before they begin their work, and they conclude with some sort of evaluation of group process. Now, I'm going to confess, I've not been a good leader in that regard. In fact, when I first got here, somebody had established a good process that I'm not always fully into. You know, when I got here, you had begun something like, where have you seen God in the past week? And you can see people kind of struggle to remember what they've been doing spiritual that week or what a spiritual happened to them. And, and sometimes congregations get carried away at that point in, in committees, and the committee can kind of go on and on and on, right? Well, I get a chance to go to lots of committee meetings, and if they go on and on and on, I just never leave this place. So I got concerned about that, and I was wrong. You know, I was wrong because... That builds team when people share their lives together in a committee environment. It helps them address sometimes difficult decisions better when they've touched base spiritually with one another and intentionally in order to start a meeting. And then when they leave, they ask, how well did we do? How well was everyone heard? How well was everyone, did everyone express their opinions? Was a group moved by one person's opinion or did the group really exchange thoughtful, even disagreements, expressing conflict or different choices or different views of a situation, and done so in an appropriate way. Can everyone leave in a healthy place? Yeah, you're beginning to get the picture of what committees are about to look like, right? All right. Number five, an emotionally intelligent congregation sponsors small group ministries where people are 
and can connect in meaningful ways. You do that very well. Throughout your church, you're very strong in this area. I commend you for that. And lastly, it ensures that all receive prompt and effective pastoral care. Every time we fail at pastoral care, and by nature of the number of people involved, we always will fail to some degree, it breaks my heart. It's something that has been very central to my life, and occasionally, though, I get so caught up in it, or Cindy and I and Chiv are also caught up in it, and the people who help us do that, that I'm afraid we don't always arrive as soon as we should, or with the proper note, phone call, or presence as we should. But somebody told me something the other day. I ran into them in a restaurant. It's nice to be in Carrollton and run into somebody I actually know in a big city. And this sweet lady was telling me and complimenting me about how good a shepherd I'd been for the congregation. And she was comparing it to many, many years past. And I just sat there and I thought, wow, I don't know if that person knows how much of a compliment they just gave me or how good they made me feel. But it lifted me for the whole day. Because I want people to feel cared for in a congregation Every one of them. That's always been terribly important to me. And we can do better than we're doing in terms of organizing, especially in regard for some of our shut-ins and other members. And we're going to do that. Now, when you get to the end of this, the writer comes back after these six marks of an intelligent, emotionally intelligent congregation. He says climate is the most important. Keeping a warm, supportive, caring climate is the most important thing for emotional, intelligent community and that's true I've seen it a million times over and over and I've also watched congregations change like the leaves change in the summertime and then in the winter and then in the spring when just a small nucleus of people will practice warmth and caring and concern for everybody they see person by person pretty soon that congregation is infected with a virus of warmth and caring and concern and everybody that walks into that community is lifted up and nurtured by it that's what I see among you oftentimes in your groups that's what I try to do at every congregation there's a reason you shake hands at the door some people will not touch meaningfully another human for a while after that they may be living as a single person in their home they may be getting all their news from the TV they may be shut off outside except when they're together with their church community we need to reach out and say to those people, you matter and that you're one of us. And we need that because sometimes we're engaged in the business world all day long, and that business world is not always kind. It does not always appreciate kindness or touch or caring because they have a business to take care of. We have the chance to bring those qualities into every community we're a part of, not just the church. And then he goes on to talk about the immune system again. And he says... He speaks in terms of viruses, is his analogy. And he says there are four viruses that are particularly damaging in a church and in their community. These viruses are not something in and of themselves, but these viruses, as he describes them, are things that take disease and blow it up bigger, like a virus spreads, you know. Well, these are things that when they are introduced into Difficult situations within church that every church is going to come into contact with. These viruses can make the disease much worse. They are secrets, accusations, lies, and triangulations. When we form triangles, 
and two could become opposed to one, we have a real problem. When we allow ourselves to be triangled about a discussion that's meant for a committee and that committee alone, we become a part of a triangle. When we try to assist others to take our side in a dispute between us and another person, we are attempting to triangle people to achieve the goal we want to do. When we don't tell the truth about what's going on, it's difficult. When we accuse people without knowing the whole story, it causes great damage and makes the disease worse. When we keep secrets that are meant and need to be shared within the community, I'm not talking about the things that should not be shared within a community because there are some things that are not for community sharing. But there are also things that are kept in such a way that they become a big secret and that makes it very difficult to not have disease spreading within the congregation. It destroys trust when secrets are being kept. And I close this sermon as we prepare for communion with this idea in building a better us as a as a church, I want you to hear from, from Scripture as we live in this disconnected world, even with all our toys, that the human connection is always critical. And it's said most poignantly in the words of St. Paul. I want you to stand so I know you're listening for the reading of the Scripture this morning. As a summation of why it's so important for us to be an emotionally intelligent congregation For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, In the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And now I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, to the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be the weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on those we bestow more abundant honor... And on our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. So that there may be no division in the body. But that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way.
If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind, and it's not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked easily and does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. When Jesus was on the earth, he walked the earth as a human. And we experienced his humanity as he suffered and died for each of us. We were touched by it in a way that no other human has ever since touched people. We were also touched by the divinity of Jesus as it was revealed in his resurrection because he saved us from ourselves touched by the humanity of Jesus touched by the divinity of Jesus all which we celebrate when we come to this table that's before us this is the table of our Lord Jesus Christ it is not a United Methodist table and it's open to anyone who wishes to come and to be a part of the community that he formed here on this earth as you come to that table this morning if you want to leave gifts upon the chancel rail they'll be used to reach out and touch the lives of people who are hurting and they need a touch from the church to help them get over a very difficult time in their life please be generous again you're all welcome for this is your table if you will bow your heads with me now we shall go to the Lord in prayer and confess our sins and then move into the great thanksgiving at the end Lord our God, created in your image, fallen as a human race. Our sin is before us, and your grace is yearned for. Look into our hearts and into our minds and forgive us of that part of us that is not like Jesus. Cleanse us of our iniquities, Lord. Hear our words of confession. Shower your grace upon us and refresh us to begin anew and afresh as we leave from this table. O Lord our God, having confessed our sins, we rejoice to be your children. No other one forgives us so. No other one unites us so. We trust you. And we humbly come to your table to feel your touch. Bless us as we come. I ask in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.